Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Hello, my football friends. Darren Hayes here of PigskinDispatch.com. We're going to go back to our best of Pigskin Dispatch and go to our jersey numbers for jersey number 11. And we had Warren Rogan on once again from the Sports Forgotten Heroes, and he talks about some of the greatest players of war number 11. So enjoy this. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Guest joining on us on this edition is no stranger to those who love sports history podcasts, as he's a fellow podcaster on the Sports History Network, and he loves to preserve the history of the gridiron, as well as many other athletes. Our guest to discuss the greatest number 11s in NFL history is Warren Rogan of the Sports Forgotten Heroes podcast. Warren, welcome to the pig pen once again. Hey, Darren, thanks for having me. It's been a, a lot of fun. It was great talking about number 10. And I'm ready to rock on number 11. Oh, so am I, because there are some great number 11s to, to talk there are. about. There and really to, are. And tonight, looking at it, I think beforehand, we agreed we want to put a top 10 together for these uh, number 11s. Yeah. Um, and uh, we have some some folks that are in the Hall of Fame, if we want to start off with those, or do you want to start off on another area? Well, I, I, I put my top 10 together. Of course, there's several Hall of Famers in here. And my number one top 10, uh, my number one number 11 on my top 10 list is Norm Van Brocklin. I don't think you can go wrong with naming Norm Van Brocklin the greatest to wear number 11. No, I don't think you have any disagreement there because he was quite the quarterback. Absolutely. And my number two is a guy who plays today, Larry Fitzgerald. Ah, okay. Frank as my number two greatest, number 11. I mean, why ah. is, you know, he is the Arizona Cardinals. Oh, he definitely, definitely is. I don't know if I would have picked him as the second, but the, let's, let's go ahead and let's talk about some of these guys and maybe we'll make a, sure. maybe you can change my mind by the end. Okay. My number three is Ernie Nevers. Okay. My number four is a guy who I'm sure most have never heard of, Joe Guyon. I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. I I think you're saying it well. I think that's the way. My number five, and he could actually move up higher, is Fritz Pollard. Okay. Number six is Link Lyman. My number seven is Ken Strong. 
Okay. My number eight is an all-time favorite of mine, Phil Sims. Okay, our first non-Hall of Famer yet. <laughs> yep. My number nine is Earl Morrill. Okay. And my number 10 is Julio Jones. Wow. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. That is a, a good top 10 of uh, number 11s. Let's go in here. Let's discuss some of these guys. You brought cool. up Van Brocklin first. Let's, let's get into him a little bit because you have him as num- your number one, number 11. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, had that great nick- nickname. Some say it's just the Dutchman. The others say the Flying Dutchman. The guy was just a phenom, um, played for Oregon in college for two years, and he was um, 16 and five during those two seasons with the Ducks. And then he was drafted in the fourth round by the, the Rams in the 1949 draft. And it was interesting. I put together a list of quarterbacks taken in that draft before Norm Van Brocklin. Oh, these are always good. John Rock from Georgia. He was the number two overall pick by the Lions. Stan Heath. I have no clue Hmm. who Stan Heath is. He was number five from Nevada by the Packers. Number nine overall from Notre Dame, Frank Trapuca. His son... Many might remember the name. Kelly Trapuca played for the Detroit Pistons, also from Notre Dame. You know, pretty darn good basketball player. Right. The 13th overall pick in that draft was a guy from Purdue who the Giants took, a guy by the name of Bob DeMoss. So these are some of the quarterbacks that were taken by ahead of Norm Van Brocklin And you got to say, they all missed, and they missed big time. Norm was the, uh, uh, again, taken by the Rams, and he uh, came up behind a really good quarterback for the Rams, Bob Waterfield, and ultimately wound up splitting some time with Waterfield. And together, they uh, led the Rams into the NFL championship against the Cleveland Browns in 1950. Van Brocklin started six of those games that season and went five and one in those games for 2,061 yards, 18 touchdowns, and 14 interceptions. And let's just throw it out there, you know, before anybody asks. Van Brocklin threw the ball. He threw it so much that he actually ended his career with more interceptions than he did touchdowns, but it didn't bother him because the guy, I mean, he was, he was a stud at quarterback that 1950 season. Like I said, he was five and one, the Rams, by the way, that 1950 season, think about all the offense in the history of football, the greatest show on turf, these high-powered offenses of today, the Rams of 1950 are actually the highest-scoring team in the history of football. They were just over 39 points a game, just under 39 points a game. They averaged 38.8 points per game, and the number two team, 
is the Denver Broncos of 2013 at 37.9. Most recently, the Chiefs of 2018 averaged 35.3 points per game. So you could see this Rams team, they could put up the points and they had some some players to catch the ball and run the ball and Waterfield and Van Brocklin put the ball in the air. That, that's a great perspective to think about when you say the 2018 Chiefs. You know, that means that Van Brocklin and company were scoring a field goal more than uh, Patrick Mahomes in his rookie season. That's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, they were they were just this high powered. I mean, really high powered offense. Interestingly. They split time. Van Brocklin and Waterfield split time. And then in 51, Van Brocklin only got to play, only start in two games. The Rams won the NFL championship that year in a rematch against the Browns. They beat them 24 to 17. Waterfield got that start that year in the championship, but he was struggling and Van Brocklin wound up replacing Waterfield in the game, and he went four of six for 128 yards, and he threw a 73-yard bomb to Tom Fears in the fourth quarter to win that game. So Van Brocklin only started two games in 1951, but came off the bench to lead the Rams to the win over the Browns. Now, one other note about that 1951 season, like I said, he only started two games. Waterfield was hurt, so he couldn't start the first game of the season. Van Brocklin started the first game of that season, and he threw for an NFL record, a record that still stands today, 554 yards. Wow. 27 of 41 for five touchdowns in a 54 to 14 win over a team called the New York Yanks, not Yankees, the Yanks. The Yankees were a different team that also played in the NFL. Um, This was the New York Yanks. And um, that game was at the uh, LA Coliseum. It was the following season. Well, it's crazy. He throws for 554 yards and gets replaced by Bob Waterfield. And Norm only goes on to start one more game before coming off the bench in the championship game like we had just talked about to help the Rams win that championship. 52 is where he really established himself or started to establish himself as the guy who would lead the Rams. He was 6-0 and that year, threw for 14 touchdowns, 17 interceptions. And in 1953, that's when he became the full-time starter. And he did pretty, pretty well. I mean, it was a 12-game season. He was 8-3-1, threw for 19 touchdowns, 14 interceptions, and threw for 2,393 yards. 1954 was when he threw for the most yardage of his career. He threw for 2,000, 
637 yards. And, you know, the Rams were a decent team. They, they, they were a decent team through the 50s. And after, you know, Norm put up some good numbers, uh, was a starter for the Rams in 53, 54, 55, 56. And after the 57 season said he was going to retire, the Rams had a new quarterback, Billy Wade. And after they got Wade, Norm said, you know what? I'm not going to retire. Well, the Rams wanted to go with Wade. Van Brocklin was traded to the Philadelphia Eagles. They were, got a first-round pick in return for him, did the Rams, along with uh, an offensive lineman by the name of Buck Lansford and a defensive lineman by the name of Jimmy Harris. Now, Norm didn't have a very good first year with Philly. He led the league in attempts with 374 and completions with 198. It was his third year, though, where he was absolutely terrific. Led the Eagles to a 10-2 mark that year. Threw for 2,417 yards, 24 touchdowns, and 17 interceptions. He was 34 years old by this time. And in the NFL championship game, he led the Eagles to the win over the Packers, 17 to 13. He was only 9 of 20 that day and uh, threw for 204 yards and a touchdown. But here's a really cool stat, if I understand this correctly. That's the only time Vince Lombardi lost a playoff game. Ah, yeah, very interesting. The other thing I found interesting, he, he made first-team All-Pro once in his career, and it was that final season in Philadelphia. I mean, that for a 12-year veteran, the career he had, in your final year you make it. That's, that's an incredible feat, too. Yeah, I mean, the guy had a, um, you know – like I said, he threw for more interceptions than he did touchdowns during his career. He was threw for 173 touchdowns and 178, I think it was 178, inter, uh, yeah, 178 interceptions. You know, I didn't know about the all-pro thing. I really didn't take a look at that. Yeah, you know, he was second-team all-pro in 52, 54, 55, he was a first-teamer. Yeah, you know, interesting. 1960, he was first-team. So, you know, those interceptions, and I think the fact that his teams actually had some losing records over that period of time hurt him. But, you know, uh, after that 55 season with the Rams, he got, you know, he was 2-2, two 6-6, and two, six and six, and then he was uh, traded to Philly where he went 2-9-1 and one and 7-5. and five. But that 1960 season when he was 34, 10 and 2, and led the Rams to the uh, NFL championship, and then he retired. Um, it, for his career, though, I mean, he was 61 and 36. He was, uh, he was a heck of a quarterback. He could really, could really sling the ball. And another thing about Norm Van Brocklin, he was the first coach ever, the Minnesota Vikings. He oh, coached the Vikings. Did not know that. And he coached the Falcons as well. You know, you never – it's pretty tough to be uh, – not everybody can be Tom Coughlin and lead your team into the conference championship your second season of existence. <laughs> yeah, Van Brocklin was uh, a decent or, or we'll call it a respectable 29-51 and 51 with four ties for the uh, Vikings. For the Falcons – 
he coached them from 68 to 74. And with them, he was 37 and 49 with three ties. Never led either team to the playoffs, but he led each team to its first ever winning record. In 64, he led the Vikings to an 8-5 and 1 mark. And in 1973, he led the Atlanta Falcons to their first ever winning season when they went 9-5. and five. But yeah, he never made it to the playoffs uh, with either team. But, you know, Hall of Famer, the guy could sling the ball, no doubt about it. Oh, most definitely. Now, why don't we uh, go to your, you, you had number two on your list. You had Fitzgerald. He's still contemporary. Let's, let's stay in some of these older players. Uh, sure. Let's go to Link Lyman. I think you had him high on your list. Yeah, Link Lyman, you know, uh, look, I mean, I had to do some research here to find out who some of these guys were. And um, Link Lyman, William Roy Link Lyman, he was, he was a pioneer of the game. He played with the uh, Canton Bulldogs in 1922 and 1923, and then the Cleveland Bulldogs, and then back to Canton, and then the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets in 1925. And then he played with a a more contemporary team or a team that we we know much better, the Chicago Bears. Played for them on and off, and I couldn't figure out why on and off from 1926 through 1934. He was a, um, you know, one of these guys who was an all-around ball player. He uh, lined up on both sides of the ball, as everybody did back then. He helped, but he, he, he mostly played defense. He was a big boy uh, with Canton in 1922. He helped them go. 10-0-2. They were, they, were, they were this crazy good team. They shut out in 12 games, nine times they shut out the opposition, and they gave up just 15 points the entire year. Like I said, he played, you know, like everybody, both sides of the ball, but he was mainly a tackle, a left tackle. In 1923, again with Canton, in 12 games, they had eight shutouts. They gave up a total of 19 points. And then with Cleveland, they went 7-1-1, one and one, gave up 60 points. And that was a third straight NFL championship. So he was an anchor on the line and helped lead his teams in three years to, what's that, 21-28, one and a 28 one and two mark and three straight NFL championships. His last season was 1934 with the bears, the bears, they were a heck of a team. They went 13 and oh, but they lost the championship to the giants that year. I think what I was able to find out was that link is most famous for becoming the first player to shift on defense. And that really caused trouble for offensive linemen because they'd never seen anything like it. They didn't know how to block him. He was really astute at reading the offense and he would move before the ball was snapped based on what he thought the offense was, would, would do. So he was somewhat ahead of his time. 
Oh, most definitely. You see that, you know, it's commonplace now on a defensive line. You see shifts all over the place on the defensive line once the offense sets up. But yeah, like you said, Link Lyman is probably the first uh, defensive lineman known to be doing that. And it really caught on quickly in the NFL when they saw his success. Uh, others were, were copycatting that right away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was a pioneer. He was a true, a true pioneer. All right. Uh, Let's go on to one of the other uh, uh, older players, uh, players from yesteryear, uh, Ernie Nevers. Now, uh, I got a self-promo here. Ernie Nevers, um, I did a podcast on him, episode number 65. Ernie Nevers was one heck of a ball player. I mean, earlier this year, uh, who was it, Alvin Kamara Mm -hmm. um, on the Saints came close to, uh, to breaking Ernie's record. Ernie scored 40 points on Thanksgiving against the Chicago Bears in a game that his Chicago Cardinals won 40 to 6. I mean, it was it was it was crazy. He uh scored six touchdowns that day. He only played 5 years and I found that really interesting and you know, back then stats weren't kept like they are today, but he did for his career score 38 touchdowns. He kicked 52 extra points. Now here's something that many people might not know about Ernie. He also played for the St. Louis Browns of the American league in major league baseball. Ernie um, played in 1926 for the St. Louis Browns. And he was two and four with a 4.46 ERA, but football was his game. So he's a pitcher, huh? Yeah, he was a pitcher. And um, the highlight of his career, he threw a complete game win over the Detroit Tigers against a lineup that included Ty Cobb, Heine Manush, and Charlie Gerringer, among others. I mean, Ernie Nevers was one heck of a uh, of an athlete and like i said that he had that one game where he scored on thanksgiving day you know he, he ran for six touchdowns and that wasn't it wasn't really unusual for ernie to score all the points in in his games uh reading straight from straight from the book September 19th, 1926, in his first game for the Duluth Eskimos, Ernie uh, scored the game's only touchdown in a 7-0 win. October 10th, 1926, he led the Eskimos to a 26-0 win over the Hammond Pros. He threw a touchdown pass to a guy by the name of Joe Rooney, and then he also scored a rushing touchdown. October 17th, 1926, He threw a touchdown pass, scored a rushing touchdown, and kicked three extra points in a 21-0 win over the Racine Tornadoes. October 31st, 1926, his team beat the Milwaukee Badgers 7-6, and he was described as the whole show, noting that he he threw a 35-yard touchdown pass in in the final five minutes and kicked an extra point to give the Eskimos the victory on November 11th, 1926, he scored all 13 points for Duluth. On November 21st, 1926, he scored 
each of their points in a 10 to two win over the Canton Bulldogs. On November 27th, just six days later, he scored every point in a 16 nothing win. Again, you know, this time over the Hartford Blues. The guy, he was he was crazy. He was just he was he was that good. And then of course, you know, the big game was years later, 1929. You know, you could end up playing three games in a seven, eight day span back then. Right. He played whenever, whenever really they could. So on November 24th, 1929 for the Chicago Cardinals, he scored all 19 points. That's three touchdowns and an extra point in the Cardinals 19, nothing win over a team called the Dayton triangles five, uh, four days later, Thanksgiving day, November 28th, 1929. He set an NFL record, a record that still stands today. He scored all 40 points in the Cardinals, 40 to six win over the Chicago bears. That's six rushing touchdowns. And like I said, it was, well, he also kicked four extra points. So Alvin Kamara scored six touchdowns this year on Christmas Day against the Minnesota Vikings, but he only tallied 36 points. So Nevers got him with the four extra points. It's got to be a holiday thing. You know, Thanksgiving Day, Christmas Day, those guys are putting up those big numbers. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, seven days later on December 1st, Nevers threw a touchdown pass and he intercepted a pass and returned it, ended up scoring a touchdown on on the uh, rushing play one play later. He kicked the extra point. And then seven days after that, he threw for two touchdowns, ran for a touchdown and kicked two extra points. So, I mean, the guy was just this incredible scoring machine. He was just this incredible uh, football player. And he coached a little too. He wasn't that good a coach. He coached, uh, he was a player coach. He coached the Duluth Eskimos. And then he coached the Chicago Cardinals. And um, he was uh, 12 and 27 with two ties as a coach. See, that's part of the reason I had Nevers on my list as number one for the, for number 11s. And, that some of those reasons are exactly why, because he had a, he only had a small body of work. So I understand why you you have him down a little bit, but for what he did in those five years, I mean, all NFL and all five NFL seasons he played. I mean, that's almost unheard of to have somebody every single year they play to do that. Yeah, you know, you you make a really good you, you make a good argument. I could see possibly even moving him up to number two and replace my number two uh, choice, Larry Fitzgerald, with Nevers. But the reason I went with Van Brocklin was partially because of the longevity of his career. Well, yeah, most definitely. But the other reason is I, I sort of, uh, I don't know, I, I love the old guys that went, uh, you know, the two-way players. And, you know, Nevers was definitely that. Plus, he was, did all the kicking. He was sort of a, a triple threat, if you may, may say. You know, he had offense, defense, yeah. and special teams. And I, I, the the only thing, and I understand why, because of the body work, if, if him and Van Brocklin both played 13 years, I think you probably have no problem saying probably Ernie Nevers, if he continued to put up numbers like that. But I, I, I still think just in those five years, he proved to me, I think he, that's why I I think he's up near the top there. 
Yeah, no doubt. You know what? You make a, you make a good argument. Uh, I could see possibly moving Ernie up to number two over a guy like Larry Fitzgerald, who is, you know, just what a, what a terrific career he's had and, you know, might, might still be playing next year. We don't know that yet. You know, a lot of the guys from, from back then, you know, the twenties, the thirties, the forties, even into the fifties, they didn't, play as long as a lot of the guys do today as physical as the game is today it was even more physical back then in fact there was a time where the league was threatened to be shut down by the government by uh i think it was fdr because it was that dangerous and players were getting killed out on literally killed on the field uh or you know, severely, you know, injured with, you know, broken backs, broken necks. I mean, it was, it was a tough, tough game because they didn't have the equipment or the rules that uh, we play with today. Um, So a lot of them didn't play. You know, I just recently did a podcast on a guy who only played for four years, a guy by the name of Speck Sanders. And, that was a great you, podcast, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. If you were to extrapolate his numbers over the course of a 10 to 15-year career, he'd be a most recognizable game and a shoo-in for the Hall of Fame. So um, you're right. I mean, Nevers could be a number one. I, I elect to put Van Brocklin one because of the longevity. But you know what? Ernie Nevers could be number two without a doubt. Okay, so we, we think we, we agree on our top two, whatever where you put them. You know. sure. So why don't we go to who we both have sort of agree on number th- in the top three. That's Larry Fitzgerald, who, who's still playing, and uh, I think he's going to come back this next year too. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't announced it, but my gosh, what a, um, what a player. I mean, he is as solid and as consistent as they come. And, you know – the the shame of it is is that the cardinals just they just haven't been this perennial playoff team national nationally recognized team if they got the kind of recognition uh the kind of national following that teams like the steelers or the cowboys or the Packers, or, you know, even a, the 49ers, um, the Raiders even, if, if this team had that kind of recognition, you know, as big and as popular as Larry Fitzgerald is, my gosh, he would be even that much more um, popular, might even be considered – you know, top two or three of all time, if he's not already. You know, that's kind of an interesting point you bring up when you say the Cardinals, because I mean, the Cardinals have been uh, in three different cities, you know, from the Midwest all the way to the, almost to the West coast. Yeah. You would think that they would pick up some popular, more popular. They're the oldest franchise in the NFL. Uh, And uh, you know, playing it, starting off in Chicago, playing in St. Louis, now in Arizona, you would just think that they would have, a bigger following, but maybe it's because they don't have those championships. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, had they stayed in Chicago, they would have a bigger follow, a bigger following just based off of it being Chicago. Um, you know, what happened in St. Louis, um, you know, uh, uh, they wanted a stadium. They didn't get the stadium. So uh, Bidwell moved them out to the desert. And um, I think that when the Cardinals have been good, they have gotten uh, some national recognition, but during their down years, they don't get much recognition. And you take a look at a team like the Cowboys, even when the Cowboys are down, they're one of the most talked about teams in all of football, if not all of sport. And, you know, and, and it's really a shame because Fitzgerald's just as good as anybody. And, you know, the game, obviously, to me, that comes to mind was the Super Bowl uh, against the Steelers in 19, uh, in 2020, 20, uh, what do you call it? 2008. 2008. 2008. I mean, he had one heck of a game. I mean, he had... Uh, seven receptions for 127 yards, two touchdowns, and that long that long catch that he had uh, off the arm of Kurt Warner for that 64 yard run uh, after after the reception. I mean, you take a look at, at at Larry Fitzgerald's numbers. I mean, he has what over 17,000 yards. Right. Uh, let's see here. Let's go to the stats. 17,492 yards. He In 2015, he caught 109 passes. 2016, he led the league with 107. And then 2017, he had another 109. So, so in three years, he had 325 receptions. Um, his biggest year was... 2008, the Super Bowl year, when he had over 1,400 yards, he scored 12 touchdowns. He's got 121 touchdowns for his career. What hasn't this guy done that he would need to do uh, to be regarded in the top three? I mean, obviously, you got to put Jerry Rice up there. And then, you know, after Rice, it could be Larry Fitzgerald. It could very well be. You're right. Yeah, he's definitely uh, a great thing. An interesting story about him, and I, I believe this is the way it went. His, uh, I believe his father was a coach for the Minnesota Vikings. Mm-hmm. And he was, as a youngster, he was sitting there as a ball boy or did something on the sidelines, you know, with you know Chris Carter and uh, some of those great receivers they had up there at the Vikings. You know, so what a what great mentors to have uh, when you're growing up to learn how to catch a ball. Yeah, I got an interesting story about Larry Fitzgerald. Um, I'm a producer. I produce television commercials, documentaries, a bunch of different things. And I had to produce a commercial, and Larry Fitzgerald was in the commercial. And uh, we had to fly out to Phoenix, and we uh, rented a football field at a, uh, an artificial turf football field at a high school we had to have Larry catch the ball. And he said, I'm not catching the ball. I'm like, why not? He says, we have one of those, uh, uh, what do you call it? Jugs where they, you put the football in there and it spits it out. J- jugs machine. Yeah. Jugs, machi- jugs machine. And um, he says, 
I need somebody else. You know, I, I, I this thing could could shoot it out too fast. I said, come on, you can catch that ball. So I said, Larry, there's really no issue with this. I stood there, caught the ball, and he said, well, if you can catch it, I can catch it. Let me <laughs> tell you, that ball came out of there so fast, it burned my hands. <laughs> <laughs> but he saw me do it, so he did it. It was a, uh, it was a fun commercial. Fun commercial. That's, that's, my, that's my Larry Fitzgerald uh I thought you were going to tell us when he said he didn't want to catch the ball. There's that commercial. It's out uh, just this past year where he's like sitting in somebody's living room and they, the guy throws him the ball and he oh, yeah. just has to go pass and it crashes a lamp out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's my, uh, that's my, that's my Larry Fitzgerald. Well, that's pretty cool though. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. I had to catch a ball to make sure it was all cool for Larry Fitzgerald. <laughs> Well, what do we, okay. So we got those, those are our top three. We've Ernie Nevers and Norm Van Brock and whatever order you want to put them in Larry Fitzgerald in there. Who did you have number four as your, your, I had, uh, I had Joe guy on number four. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, another, another guy, another pioneer, he played for the Canton Bulldogs a team called the Cleveland Indians, a team called the Washington Senators. Now, and and he played for the New York Giants, amongst others. Back then, to help football teams get name recognition and be popular in the cities uh, that they played in, they took on the uh, uh, team names of, of the baseball teams. So that's why he played for a team like the Cleveland Indians. But don't, and, don't forget about the, the Orang Indians too. Well, <laughs> I, I was there. He, um, he played for, not only did he play for the Orang Indians, he also played for a team called the Rock Island Independents and the Kansas City Cowboys. Um, Joe was inducted into the, uh, football Hall of Fame, yeah, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1966. But interestingly, before he went to the pros, Guyon played for the Carlisle Indian Industrial School from 1912 to 1913. And during that time, he played with Jim Thorpe. So Guyon, before he went to the pros, played with Jim Thorpe at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And, and, and that's both, nine, co- both coached by Pop Warner, too. By both the way. coached by Pop Warner. And um, they tried to, to in, in, you know, you could never, ever get away with this today. They tried to call him. Uh, Injun Joan, a la The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but it it didn't stick. But that 1912 team was one heck of a team, and Guyon was the left tackle on that team. They went 12-1-1 and scored something like 456 points. The following year, the following year, uh, Thorpe, Thorpe was the halfback that year and the following year he was gone. So Guyon took the role at, at halfback and was named by Walter Camp as a second team All-American on a team that went 10-1-1 and scored 296 points. Um, but Guyon was a winner. Um, he played in the NFL from 1920 through 1927. Uh, his biggest season 
was with the New York Giants in 1927 when the Giants went 10-1 and uh, I'm sorry, 11-1 and one, and um, they uh, they won the uh, NFL championship th- that year, and uh, the team gave up 20 points the entire season. Very interesting. See, I I had guy on. I had a couple of guys ahead of guy on. Um, and uh, I mean, not, not that he's a bad player, but I, I end up having uh, Fritz Pollard and uh, Link Lyman ahead of. Uh, well, I do. I have Link Lyman. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I have Link Lyman right after him. You know, it, it, it's, it's tough to rank guys like that who you've never seen. And like I said, I could actually put Fritz Pollard ahead of both of them. I mean, Fritz Pollard. Uh, when you read about the things that, that he did, um, and maybe some of it, um, maybe the reason I have Fritz Pollard lower is because he, um, I think he's more known for his role as a coach as opposed to uh, uh, being a player. He was the, you know, he, he coached a team called the um, – Akron pros. He was a player coach for them. And again, it's just, it's so hard. Oh, it, it definitely is. Now, I, I, I was a little bit of inspired. Are you a PFRA member? I am. Did you see the, yes, uh, the I was going to say, I just got, uh, got this, uh, last the coffin week, I think. Corner. The oh, coffin yeah. corner. Right. He yeah. made the cover of the coffin corner. This yeah. edition. Yeah. Um, you know, he was elected to the hall of fame in 2005 uh, first African-American head coach in the NFL. He was co-coach of the Akron Pros in 1921. He led the team to the NFL championship in 1920. At that time, the NFL was known as the American Professional Football Association. That's really the first every year uh, that there was an NFL um, Again, it's just so hard because there was really – so little record keeping back then. Uh, um, so it's, it's really hard to rank, you know, a Lyman, a Pollard, a guy on even a Ken strong, because they, they played in, in an era where we just didn't get to really tally up their numbers. And there's so little video evidence of how good these guys really were. Um, another interesting point, though, about Fritz, which has nothing to do with his ranking or how great a football player he was, his son, Fritz Pollard Jr., won the 110-meter hurdles in the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin in front of Hitler. Oh, that was like the Jesse Owens uh, Olympics. That's yes. Wow. Very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So... And then, and then after Pollard, I put Ken Strong. Again, another guy from that era. He played for a team called the uh, Staten Island Stapletons from 1929 through 1932. The Giants from 33 through 39. Then the war happened. Then he left for the war. Then he came back and he played for the Giants again from 44 through 49. He literally played everywhere from halfback to quarterback to kicker to wingback to defensive back. His best year 
1934, and record-keeping was a little bit better. Um, he rushed for 431 yards in 34, and he scored six touchdowns. For his career, he scored 24 touchdowns rushing, and he caught seven passes for touchdowns as well. I think where he really <laughs> – so, that's a big. That's a big number for that era. It catching is. seven touchdown passes. It, 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 it really is, but I think where he might have even made more of an impact was as a kicker. He had 166 extra points, and beginning in 1939, that's when I think stats took a major a major leap, and they became. Um, um, much more uh, uh, they were better kept and from 1939 through the end of his the end of his career which like I said was 1949 he connected on 98 percent of his extra points he was 111 for 113 and really, that was through 1947. I'm sorry, sorry, not 1949. I mean, for his career, he was 111 of 166. That's good numbers. Real yeah. Good. So I mean, it, it's just he was he was just a heck of a kicker. He also threw the ball. Like I said, he was a he was a quarterback too. Uh, passed uh, through, over the course of his career. Attempted 52 passes, completed 20 of them for 380 yards, six touchdowns, and five interceptions. Inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1967. And deservedly so. Good player. Yep. yep. All right. Who, who did you have uh, next on your list? On my list, after Ken Strong, I went with Phil Sims. I would not disagree with that one a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, Phil Sims is – he came out of the football powerhouse known as Moorhead State. <laughs> um, you know, they're, uh, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't even, they might be a Division II team at this point, or maybe they are the Division uh, I, AA, I think, one, maybe. Yeah, what, what do they call that now? The, uh, the FBS teams. Yes. Um, he was, but he was highly thought of. He really was. He was um, highly regarded. And um, before the 1979 draft, which uh, he was taken as the seventh pick in the 79 draft, Bill Walsh knew about him and he wanted, he wanted a, a really good evaluation of him. So he sent one of his assistants, Sam Weish, out to Moorhead State to evaluate Phil Sims. And the story is that Walsh, was so impressed with Sims that he planned on taking him in the third round over the guy he ultimately did take, some guy out of Notre Dame named Joe Montana. <laughs> um, and he wound up with Montana because the Giants and at that time Ray Perkins were so impressed by Sims, they wound up taking him with this – seventh pick overall and can you imagine when <laughs> Pete Rozelle announced with the number seven pick in the NFL draft the New York Giants select Phil Sims 
gosh. <laughs> you know, they they um they took him over the throwing Samoan as well, Jack Thompson, who wasn't didn't exactly turn out to have a a great career. Uh, the two best quarterbacks out of that draft wound up uh, being Sims and Montana. Obviously, we know the story about Joe Montana and how great he was. But I argue that if Sims was in that offense, he might have done just as well as Montana. And heck, Sims did pretty well in head-to-head matchups against Montana. I don't have the exact number here. And Sims, you know, won the Giants' first ever Super Bowl and was on his way to possibly winning that second Super Bowl before he got hurt. And Jeff Hostetler had to take over. Uh, you know, Sims was really affected by a lot of injuries early on in, in his career. And um, he had a 15-year career and only four times did he actually play all 16 games. And he missed the entire 1982 season with a knee injury. Uh, his last year in the NFL, he went 11-5. and five. His overall career record was 95-64. and 64. He threw for 199 touchdowns, 157 interceptions. But, you know, he didn't have much of an offensive line his first couple of years, in fact, he holds the team record for being sacked the most times ever, 477. Sacked the most times in one season, 55. Um, but he also owns some pretty good marks, like that Super Bowl against the Broncos when he went 22 of 25. So he only had three incomplete passes. His, his passer rating for that game was 150.9. Um, the Giants that year went 14 and two. And I remember watching the game and, you know, you, you, there's always this game during the season where you go, Ooh, they might actually have a shot at being something really special. And I remember the game, it was against the Minnesota Vikings and it was the 11th game of the season. The Giants um, at that point, at that point, were uh, 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 nine and one, and it was the fourth quarter. They were losing, and Phil Sims completed a pass on a fourth and seventeen to Bobby Johnson for an eighteen-yard completion. The Giants wound up winning that game on a field goal, twenty-two to twenty, and it was that game when I think Giant fans realized. They had something special. They started to believe that the Giants could do something really special that year, and they did. They ended up winning the Super Bowl, beating the Broncos 39-20. to 20. It, was, it was just that really special year. And a couple years later, 1990, he was 11-3 before he got hurt, and the Giants went on to win the Super Bowl that year uh, over the uh, Buffalo Bills. It was uh, – he had one heck of a career. And like I said, you know, um, uh, injuries really hurt him early on. And there was a time when he asked for a trade. You know, he got benched in favor of Scott Brunner. And uh, um, Parcells at that point was the coach and said, I'm not trading you. And it was a short time thereafter when Brunner uh, wasn't living up to the job that – Parcells needed and Sims came back in and when he did he never relinquished that starting job 
until uh, until he retired. Yeah, incredible quarterback. Uh, you know, he could always always kept his team in the game. You know, didn't have the the big passing yards, but he always had a great stable of backs uh, behind him. And you know, of course, that defense that he he played with it was wow. you know, phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best uh, one of the best defenses of our time for sure. Absolutely. All right, who do, who do we have next on our list here? Well, next on my list, I you know might be a surprise to some people. It's Earl Morrill, and Earl. Uh, I did a podcast on Earl, episode number seventy. Earl, this is a tough one. It's a tough one to sell. He's a career backup quarterback, but he had an absolutely terrific career as a backup quarterback he threw for over 20,000 yards let that sink in for a moment a backup quarterback throwing for 20,000 yards um he played for just just the teams that he backed up though were just amazing and what he did for those teams. Right. And, and, and what I, you know, the two years that I'd really like to focus on are 1968 and 1972. Oh, you didn't want to talk about the 57 Steelers? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's who drafted him. And it was really interesting because I think at that point, their quarterback might've been Bobby Lane. Yeah, I Uh, think it was. And and they drafted Morrill, and um, you know Morrill Morrill sat the bench. Really, um, he he started. Uh, you know, uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Unitas was, was in there too. By San Francisco, he was drafted by San Francisco, and then he was traded to Pittsburgh. And he actually uh, his first year with Pittsburgh, he went six and five. He was the starting quarterback, and then he got traded to Detroit the year after that, and. Um, uh, midseason, and uh, he only started. Uh, uh, he didn't get to start any games for Detroit, and um, he was uh, he started two games for Pittsburgh, went zero and two. Then he played for Detroit for a couple of years, uh, seven in fact, and um, never never was able to break through as a starting quarterback. And his first real chance to be the starting quarterback of a football team was 1965 Detroit let him go to to the Giants and in 1965 Earl started all 14 games for the Giants went seven and seven threw for 2446 yards 22 touchdowns and 12 interceptions but then in 1967 he didn't start a single game um, the, um, or I'm sorry, 1966, he only played, se- he started seven games, went one, five and one. And then in 67, um, you know, he sat, he sat the bench and he wound up with Baltimore in 1968. And that's where I wanted to get to because 1968 was an absolutely special, special season. And by the way, Earl, had to sit the bench and watch Fran Tarkenton play when he was with the Giants in that 1967 season. And we talked about Tarkenton in our, in our number 10 show. Right. Um, So 
1968, he goes to the Baltimore Colts. The Colts have a really good team, a really good team. And Johnny Unitas goes down with an injury. So Earl Morrill has to step in. Earl goes 13 and one as the starting quarterback for the Baltimore Colts. He leads the league in touchdowns with 26, throws for over 2,900 yards, completes over 57% of his passes. He, he, he gets the team to the Super Bowl, but he just didn't play well. He went 6 of 17 in that game against the Jets for 71 yards and three interceptions. He was replaced by Unitas. But my gosh, Darren, what a year he had. A career backup, he goes 13 and 1. So, so let's go. His, his, the two years so far that Earl Morrill has been a starting quarterback, or the three years, 1957, he's six and five. And he throws for 1,900 yards, 11 touchdowns, and 12 interceptions. The next chance he gets to be a starter is 65, and he goes seven and seven for a really weak New York Giants team. And we went through his stats already. The next time he gets a start is 1968, and he goes 13 and one. Then he gets replaced by Unitas. You're not going to replace Johnny Unitas as the starting quarterback. He started two games in 69, one game in 70. Unitas gets hurt again in 71. Earl replaces him for a little bit, goes seven and two, has a, has a decent year. But after 71, he's 37 years old and decides to hang it up. Don Shula leaves Baltimore and goes to Miami to the Dolphins. He needs a good backup for Bob Greasy. He talks Earl to going into Miami. Earl goes to Miami, and what does he do? Greasy gets hurt. He is hurt. The Dolphins are 5-0. and Earl comes in. And he goes 9-0. and So that magical season when the Miami Dolphins go 14-0 and and Bob Greasy, I'm not criticizing Greasy in any way, shape, or form. Greasy gets all the credit in the world for that magical 17-0 and perfect season. Nine of those regular season wins, Earl Morrill. Earl Morrill was the quarterback. He was the quarterback. <laughs> Greasy came back in time for the playoffs, but Earl won the first game of the playoffs against the Browns, 20-14. to 14. It was a struggle, but he won the game. He then struggled in the AFC Championship game against the Steelers, and Shula replaced him with Greasy. Earl got credit for the win, but he had struggled against the Browns. He had struggled against the Steelers. So Shula gives Greasy the start in the Super Bowl against the Redskins. Earl didn't get to play in that game. Miami won, and the rest is history. The Dolphins go 17-0. and Bob Greasy did this incredible job. No one remembers that <laughs> Earl Morrill was 9-0 and that year. 
But I mean, you, you talk about him being a, a, a pretty much a career backup, but think about it in his 22 seasons, probably about half of that, or at least 10 of those. I mean, he's playing behind Tarkington, Unitas, Greasy, you know, those are yeah. some big names in uh, quarterbacks in the football history yeah. of the NFL. And, and, and his record as a starter, 63 wins and 36 losses threw for 20,809 yards, had a completion percentage of 51.3, 161 touchdowns, 148 interceptions, and had a career passer rating of 74.1. The guy was a good quarterback, and he just always found himself behind a great a great quarterback and he just couldn't break through. Um, Yeah. I rank him as my number nine all time, number 11. And I think deservedly. So I I think you're right. I have him on my list also. Yeah. And by the way, the San Francisco 49ers picked him second overall in the 1956 draft. So he was really, really well thought of. He was had had um, very high, very high uh, uh, college marks. He went to Michigan State, and you know he was he was a heck of a college quarterback, and I think he was a heck of a a heck of a pro quarterback. And while he will never make it to the Hall of Fame, he actually has some better numbers than some guys that were that are in the hall of fame. Uh, yeah, definitely a great player. All right. Well, we're coming down to that's, that's, we have nine players, which I think we both agree on. I think this is, might be where we might disagree. Who, who do you have as your number 10 and I'll, or I'll, I'll go tell you who I have as my number 10. I have Julio Jones. Do you? That's, that's a good pick. I, well, I, I went a little bit different. I went with Danny white. Interesting. You know, I saw Danny White on there and, you know, I think the biggest knock against Danny White is the fact that he replaced Roger Staubach. So he probably doesn't get the recognition that he deserves. But yeah, you know, Danny was a was a heck of a quarterback. Um, he, he had a 62 and 30 record. I mean, you don't think about that. I mean, you think about him playing as the he was the punter when Staubach was on a team and he was a backup quarterback you know but he did play quite a bit after Staubach you know 62 and 30 is nothing to sneeze at uh you know almost 60 percent on his completions almost 22,000 yards 155 touchdowns and uh that, that's you know, had some pretty decent records uh till till the end you know he had he did have a 10 and 4 season a 12 and 4 season as a starter a couple a couple of 12 and 4s and 11 and 4 you know post Staubach and yep. uh, guided the, the Cowboys had some decent teams then too, even after Roger Staubach. Yeah, they just uh, he just couldn't get them over the hump to get them uh, to a Super Bowl win. Uh, yeah, you know you could certainly make an argument that he's a top ten, number eleven of all time. Um, like you said, I mean his his he had a heck of a completion percentage uh, for his career fifty nine point seven. His quarterback rating eighty one point seven. Um, he, he had, uh, uh, 11 fourth quarter 
wins, 14 game-winning drives. Um, and like you said, I mean, he was, he, was, he was a heck of a punter too. He was the uh, punter for the team for, you know, almost his entire career. Uh, his uh, 40.2 uh, yards per punt average. You could definitely, I mean, you know, I'm saying Julio Jones, you know, again, could be a coin toss. But Julio Jones, I mean, has 60 touchdowns over the course of, of, of his career, uh, almost 30, he's 104 yards short of, excuse me, 13,000 yards. He um, had uh, led the NFL in 2015 with 136 receptions, 1,871 yards. I mean, that's a big number. He averaged 116 yards a game, almost 117 yards a game. Um, 2018, he had 113 receptions for 1,677 yards. Two seasons ago, 2019, he had 99 receptions for almost 1,400 yards. Um, you know, he um, – He's, I think he's a Hall of Famer. Oh, I, I think Julio Jones right. is going to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you, de- you definitely have a point there. He has uh, got some, good, had some really good numbers. I, I guess yeah, the thing that so- always sort of sticks in the back of my head is just a couple years ago when he went for so long, so many games without having a touchdown pass. And I guess that's, you know, that's, that's an important stat, but it shouldn't be the, the stat that we remember. But it is the one we remember because that's the – you know, that's the, the big uh, play, you know, it's when you score. The yeah, play. He, it was, I, I, he, he did, he did struggle. It was 2017. Uh, I think that's the year you're talking about. He had 88 receptions, 1,444 yards, but he only had three touchdowns. So, you know, is, you know, he, he averaged 90 yards a game. Why didn't he, why didn't he score more touchdowns? Is that his fault? Um, supporting cast. That's an interesting, that's an interesting um, observation. Um, and even yeah. this past year, he, and he was hurt, dinged up a little bit. Yeah. Three touchdowns this past year in 2020. Uh, 2013, he had only two touchdown pass uh, catches in his third season. Uh, again, was dinged up a little bit there, but um, but when he's when he's on, he's on. He's uh, you know, there's nobody better when Julio Jones is uh, playing his best. Yeah. So while we we talked about eleven guys, um, I have an outlier, one hundred percent, not a top ten guy, but I got to mention his name. Okay. Steve Spurrier. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, you know, he he was. Look, I mean. Decent college quarterback, but he was uh, uh, drafted by the San Francisco 49ers in the first round, the third overall pick in the 1967 NFL draft. But he really never got a chance. You know, he played behind John Brody. He never really got a chance to break into the lineup until 72. And what he did, um, he went 6-2-1 through for uh, – 
1,983 yards, 18 touchdown passes, 16 interceptions. And that's really his best year. I think his claim to fame has got to be 1976 as the starting quarterback for the infamous Tampa Bay Buccaneers that went 0-14. He started 12 games and lost all 12. He had uh, seven touchdown passes, 12 interceptions, threw for 1,628 yards. I just had to bring him up. I mean – you know, he's he's just that guy that you got to talk about. I have one of those guys too that I, you know, I don't know that he'll make the, he'll make the Hall of Fame, but he was a Super Bowl MVP and wears a number eleven, and that's uh, Julian Edelman. Um, yeah. He is just, I mean, as a, I'm, I'm not a Patriots fan, but you got to respect a guy that's you look at as a being a pain in the ass when you're the opposition because he's a real pain in the ass. He's you know, especially when Brady was there catching all that underneath those underneath passes, uh, just a gutsy player uh, goes in the, you know, goes in there where the linebackers are roaming and takes some pops and just a real gutsy performer for a, a smaller, smaller guy. Uh, yeah. I mean, he really came into his own in 2013. He started to become a really big part of the offense there. Caught 105 passes that year. Two years ago, uh, Brady's final season with the Patriots, he, he, he caught 100 passes. I mean, the guy's got 36 touchdowns uh, uh, for his career. Um, you know, he, um, he's, he, he's, he is about as tough as they come. You hit him, he bounces, he gets right back up. Like you said, I don't know if he'll make it to the Hall of Fame. I don't think he's got Hall of Fame numbers. You know, he's got uh, – I don't know if he'll reach 10,000 yards receiving. He's already – next year will be 35, and he's at 6,800 yards. Um, and obviously, the the Patriots are going through a a metamorphosis, of, so to speak. They're, they're changing the kind of team they are. But my gosh, Julian Edelman is as tough as they come, no doubt. And a couple other outliers that again, guys that probably won't won't sniff the, the Hall of Fame, but just uh, they've had some great performances. You know, Alex Smith. You know, this this past season. And what can you say about Alex Smith? And just the, the tough breaks he's taken with injuries. A lot but of to, courage. To, but a lot to, of courage to come back from that. But, right to come back and play the way he did. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely worth mentioning as a number eleven. And another one, uh, sort of a, more controversial, is Drew Bledsoe. Uh, the the potential that was, and he did show a lot of that, but just never really got over that that hump. You know, he got it. You know, played in a Super Bowl, but uh, he was sat the bench basically because that's when Brady sort of took over for him, got the nod after uh, he was replaced earlier in the season. Yeah, you know that um, it, it, it's a really interesting thing because you you're always told you'll never lose your job because of injury. And that's really exactly what happened to him. I mean, no doubt a serviceable quarterback, better than a serviceable quarterback. I mean, somebody could take that as an insult, serviceable. I mean, he was a good quarterback, had a career, uh, you know, his his record as a starter, he he was a winning quarterback. Um, 
you know, he, let's see, New England 10 and six, one year, 11 and five, one year, 10 and six, eight and six, um, went nine and seven with a, with a Buffalo Bills team in the early 2000s, nine and seven with the Cowboys. Um, yeah, you know, he was, he was most definitely a good quarterback, Hall of Famer. I'm not, you know, not a Hall of Famer, but you take a look, three times he threw for over 4,000 yards. Led the NFL his second season with 4,555 yards. He had seasons where he uh, 25 touchdowns, 28 touchdowns. Yeah, you know, he never threw for 30 touchdowns in a season. But um, no doubt, Drew Bledsoe was a good starting quarterback. Yeah, de- definitely worth mentioning in that when you're talking about the, the- the top 11s of all time, but not in that top 10 with uh, some of these other players. Well, before I let you go, do you have anybody else that you want to mention uh, that were the number 11? No, I, I mentioned my, uh, my my outlier and definitely not a Hall of Famer, but a guy you got to talk about, Steve Spurrier. Right, okay. Uh, well, what do you, let's talk about your your uh, podcast a little bit. Now, we, you told us a little bit about uh, what you've had on the podcast lately and what the podcast is about, but what, what got you started in that podcast of uh, you're talking about sports forgotten heroes? What was your motivation? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a... I love sports history. I have a, a pretty extensive library, uh, a lot of golf, a lot of baseball, and a decent amount of football. Um, I love knowing about the guys of yesteryear. Um, one of the uh, uh, first episodes I did, I think it was the first episode, was about a guy by the name of Ed Delahanty who was a baseball player uh, back in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. I read this book about him called July 4th, 19, uh, 1902, I think it was, or 1903. And um, it, it was about his career and he disappeared. He disappeared. He uh, didn't think he was being paid enough money and he ended up signing a contract with the rival Federal League back then. Uh, I'm sorry, the rival American League. And then um, he was um, he, he was he, he struggled from within. He I think he battled with depression. He wrote life insurance. He took out life insurance policies on himself periodically. And then one day he disappeared. And they never found him until days later when he washed up at the bottom of Niagara Falls. Uh, he, uh, tragic. They, they say he jumped off the International Bridge. Um, and it's stories like that. The story of Bill Barilko, who um, was a hockey player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Four of his first five years with the team, they won the Stanley Cup. And then during the summer, he went on a fishing trip never to be seen again. The, the Maple Leafs went in the tank for 10 or 11 years. Then they won the Stanley Cup and they found the plane that he was wrecked in right after that. Um, hmm. So it's stories like that that always fascinate me, you know, that have these, these uh, uh, cool, uh, you know, side stories. It's not just about the career. 
Dean Chance, who won the 1964 Cy Young Award pitching for the Angels. He also started the International Boxing Federation. He was a huge boxing fan. I love uncovering stories like that, getting these side stories. And I just love talking about great careers that for whatever reason have been forgotten. And sometimes it's because, you know, like we just talked about Earl Morrill, he plays behind Johnny Unitas and he plays behind Bob Greasy and he plays behind Fran Tarkenton. Well, sometimes you are overshadowed by a Hall of Famer who's standing next to you on the ball field and you don't get the recognition perhaps that you deserve. So I like to talk about a lot of those a lot of those players. Um, the podcast that I have out right now is about Pete Sampras. Pete Sampras, you know, when he retired, he had won 14 Grand Slam events, uh, Grand Slam championships, more than any player in the history of tennis. But his reign as the all-time winner was so short because along comes Roger Federer and then uh, uh, Djokovic and Nadal. And these guys here, it takes Sampras, you know, all this time to break Roy Emerson's record. And Sampras gets only a couple of years as the all-time greatest Grand Slam champion before these three come along. And they've won uh, – uh, 58 championships, you know, Federer has 20, Nadal has 20. And just this past weekend, uh, Djokovic won his eighth Australian for his 18th. So it's stories like that. I got a great story about another tennis player, a guy by the name of Gottfried von Krom, who uh, was German and Hitler wanted this guy to win Wimbledon. And he didn't win Wimbledon. He lost to Don Budge. And I talk about that story um, with the Gestapo in the stands ready to pounce on Von Krom if he lost. He lost. And uh, there's other parts to his story, but Hitler spared him. Oh, we'll uh, look forward to hearing that one. That sounds like a really yeah, interesting that's, too. Yeah, that's, that's pretty, it's a pretty cool story. I talk about the history of the Stanley Cup. I talk about some great basketball players, guy by the name of Dolph Shays, who, who so many don't remember. And then every once in a while, I get an actual uh, forgotten hero of the past. I've had Dennis Marook on, who is the fifth man in the history of the NHL to score 60 goals in a season. I've had Denny McLean on. Denny was a pallbearer at uh, uh, Dean Chance's funeral. He was great friends with Dean Chance. I had Skip Lockwood on, who was a favorite of mine. He was a pitcher for the New York Mets, and um, he uh, uh, was a terrific reliever. So every once in a while, I get a really uh, – I, I had Red Kelly on. Red Kelly, one of the all-time greats in the NHL. Um, fortunately, I had him on, and slight, right afterwards, uh, a couple weeks after he passed, I had Frank Ryan on. Frank Ryan – is the last quarterback for the Cleveland Browns to win an NFL championship. So every once in a while, I get the forgotten hero on himself. But for the most part, the forgotten heroes I talk about are guys who have since passed on. 
Well, but you, you really have some interesting guests, even when you don't have that, that player, just some of the other folks that you have on there talking about them, or you really get some great guests on there, have some great stories, tell some great stories yourself. And we really appreciate uh, your show. Really appreciate having you on, on this program, talking to number 11s with us today, with some uh, gridiron history. And uh, you have any last words before we let you go? No, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, coming back to talk about uh, some other numbers. It's a lot of fun, Darren. It's right up uh, uh, the alley that I do looking back at the history of the game. And um, I'm sure that some of the uh, forgotten stars that I've talked about uh, when it comes to the gridiron, we'll cover them. Guy like A guy like who we talked about earlier, Speck Sanders. It's guys like that that make these games so fun to watch. Absolutely. Uh, do you want to give out uh, any social media? Uh, sure. Out there, so? Yeah, please. Uh, I make posts every single day on Twitter. So you could follow sports forgotten heroes on Twitter at sports F heroes, Instagram sports, forgotten heroes, check out sports, forgotten heroes on Facebook. I got a page sports, forgotten heroes. And uh, yeah, check out, uh, my website, sportsfh.com, it's a, I have every podcast I've done is posted there. The stats on the players that I talk about, I have other articles about those players, video highlights of the players that I steal off of YouTube, don't tell anybody. <laughs> and um, uh, I talk about my guests as well. Like I said, I get a lot of nice guests. You mentioned earlier the PFRA, uh, that's the uh, Professional Football Researchers Association. I get guests on from there to talk about forgotten heroes of the past. I get guests on from Sabre, that's the uh, Society for American Baseball Research, to talk about some forgotten heroes from the world of baseball. And I also get some guests on from SIHR, that's a Society of International Hockey Researchers, I get them on as well. So um, there's a lot of great uh, organizations out there that uh, preserve the history of the games that we love to watch. And um, it's a lot of fun. Well, we, we appreciate what you do. We appreciate your guests and we appreciate your time you spent with us tonight. Warren Rogan of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you once again for joining us. And I can't wait till next time you're on because we know we got you signed up for some other numbers coming up. You got it, Darren. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Thanks, Warren. Fantastic. That was another great discussion with Warren Rogan on the number 11s. We talked to him about the number 10s yesterday, as we talked about. And uh, coming up this week, we are going to go to the great number 12, the top players that ever wore that number in the NFL history, with Dana Auguster of the Historically Speaking podcast, also found on the SportsHistoryNetwork.com. That's where you can also find Warren's podcast, as well as he has his own website, too, Sports Forgotten Heroes. And uh, make sure you check out both these gentlemen, because they have some fantastic fantastic podcast as well as all of our other podcast hosts on the sports history network.com uh, some great sports history there you can't go wrong by checking it out you'll spend hours of great listening uh, do the downloads while you're working out driving in the car maybe you can do it while you're working or working from home uh, whatever you're doing you know cutting the grass whatever it's, a, it's just a great time to uh, listen to some great sports uh, podcasts and uh, you can find this uh, pigskin dispatch daily history uh, podcast also at sports history network but you can also find it at our 
home website, pigskindispatch.com forward slash podcast. You'll see all of our episodes there in one place for if you want to binge listen to this particular podcast on gridiron history on a day-to-day basis. We'd love to have you there. If you have any questions, concerns, or don't agree with uh, some of our selections that Warren and I made, let us know because we you know, can miss people at pigskindispatch at gmail.com and we'll be sure in a future episode to, uh, to after doing some investigation, if there's some corrections to be made, we will definitely do that because we want to make sure we list everybody that should be on there for the NFL's greatest players to wear a particular jersey number. So until tomorrow, everybody, have a great Gridiron Day. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.